How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Science Show Podcast, episode 244. 244? It is, right? Yes, it is. Okay. I don't believe there's been an attitude change with regard to 244. Ah. <laughs> What's that from? Uh, it is from a movie called Murder in the First from 1995, which I've never seen. And, um, yeah. I like this. And couldn't find it online. Like, well, I found clips, but... Excellent. So an obscure <laughs> film any... reference to kick us off this week. Evidently. Yeah, that's the only thing. I love these quotes, but I'm, I'm having to pull them from such random places. But that's the, that's the beauty of it. I guess it is. Yeah. How I was are watching, you, I'm, I'm good. Well, it could be better. I've been watching a lot of Big Bang Theory for some reason the last week. And I almost thought I found a 244 quote in the Big Bang Theory. And yeah. I thought that could work, but it, it wasn't. It was it was like two thirty something. I was like, "Damn it, it's a few weeks off." But um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I could probably tell you right there that that's it. I was up at one in the morning last night watching the Big Bang Theory season seven on my phone, lying in bed. Just cause. Just cause. That's uh. That's, I don't. Well, you know what it is, Zeke. What? So I well, I can get into this in a minute, but it's it's. You get those YouTube recommendations and you randomly just start getting like Big Bang Fury mm-hmm. clips in there. You go, like, oh yeah, this thing. Then you look up the episode and then you find it on Stan. You end up watching the episode and then you, you download it on TV time and you're like, oh, I've only seen... You start working out which when you stopped watching the show mm-hmm. and then you're like, oh, I've only seen half the show. There's 12 seasons. I've only seen that the first six. And you're like... Do I have to tick off the rest of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> so you're on I a com- hate it. You're on a completionist run. I, I know, and I, I hate it. We can talk a little more about it in a minute, Z. Mm. Um, how, how, how was your week? Good, <laughs> good. I, well, I was on a completionist route too this week. Oh, okay. Um, but we can talk Hopefully about... for something a bit easier to watch. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but yeah, look, kicking off... Uh, you. Something that wasn't as easy to watch in terms of mm. its uncomfortability. The killing of the <laughs> sacred deer. Um, my fun film trivia fact plays in with that uncomfortability. The fact that Colin Farrell admittedly felt nauseous after reading the script mm. for the film. I blame him. Good indicator of what a Yorgos Lanthimos film does. Particularly to someone who has appeared in multiple Yorgos Lanthimos films. Well, that's it. Yeah, because he had already worked on The Lobster at that point. So you kind of already knew, reading page one, what he potentially was getting into. Yeah. So, yeah, the effect that had on him. And, and think about that, is it without any of the music or just the, the creepy performances throughout the film? Like, yeah. none of that. It was just a written word on a page was enough to to throw him off guard. Yeah, what about you, Jake? Yeah, well, mine's kind of similar in terms of Colin Farrell's involvement in the film. Now, of course, I went to eat a sandwich as I hit play on this now, I've seen it before, but I forgot that the opening shot is a literal beating heart close-up. <laughs> and I was like, great. Just bite into my sandwich with that <laughs> image into my <laughs> burned into my retinas. But what I love about that, and I, I thought so, and I and I was glad to find out it was true, that th- this was a real heart surgery. It's actually a quadruple bypass surgery done on a real patient, a real hospital. Uh that was filmed and is now part of the film and in which Colin Farrell actually attended. So I guess it's part of his training as a playing a, a surgeon. Mm, a cardiovascular to... surgeon. Mm. Um, well, hey, look, Jake, was Big Bang Theory the only thing you watched in the last week? Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, okay. I'm so sorry. I didn't I mean know. to publicly it, shame you. I like know. That. Well, I, I had to admit it at some point in the yeah. recording of this episode. No, it's... I don't know, because I've, I've been quite busy, and I've been working on, like, the VFX for my film, and, you know, whenever I get, like, a spare minute at home, lying in bed, and then, yeah, just went on this weird tear. And it's funny, because, like... I wouldn't even call the Big Bang Theory a guilty pleasure. It goes it goes a little bit beyond that. Yeah. It's like a guilty nightmare in a sense that... I mean, hey, like, what what's your relationship with the Big Bang Theory? Did you watch it when you were growing up? Or? You know what? I, I think it was the show that, you know, would always play on, particularly back in the days when you didn't have... Only rich people had Foxtel and there's no streaming right. services. Um we obviously have free to air here in, in Australia and, and that makes the lands of pretty much 99 go mm. uh, seven make, which was 73. They were kind of like the fun cartoony or, or sitcom-y um, places you watched your shows. And mm. big bang theory was the one that was always on obviously 99 at about six thirty seven o'clock. So I'd always pick up particularly earlier season episodes. Yeah. I definitely, liked it i actually watched it probably before watching how i met your mother like right. i remember it in that both in that early childhood when they were both on television starting i watched more big bang theory but then quickly grew to just fall in love and adore sure how to meet um, your mother how I met your mother so i have admittedly i've i've picked it up occasionally and I, like i'll see episodes here and there i always remember Whenever I was on a plane, you know, they're a good 20-minute, like, fill. Like like you said... That's a it, huge part of it is how short and sweet they are. Yeah. The runtimes. You um, smash through episodes. So I, don't, I don't dislike the show by any means. I, mm. I think it was, you know, it's one of those sitcoms, one of the last uh, of that type of sitcom, really, that yeah. was authentically effective. And um, But, yeah, I've just never been able to go through it. I think at the start of this year, I was like, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch all 12 seasons. I've watched maybe the first 10 episodes, which I'd already right. seen. So that, that this that. year, you tried yeah. to do that. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, But I didn't get through enough of it to really kind of make a note of it because, mm. um, yeah, because of that reason. And, and yeah, you know, maybe maybe there'll come a time where, where I pick it up because it's pretty much from that era, the only sitcom I haven't watched. Yeah. Um, I think for me... Through. I think because I I am almost watching a vast majority of it like in the corner of the screen while I'm doing something else, and you know it's not a very like cinematically rich show in terms of its visuals. Like it's very sitcommy lighting. Every you know every scenario looks mm. the same, whether it's during the day or at night. All the sets are the same. All the scenarios are the same. But it 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 I mean, it's yeah, it's a fourth wall breaking sitcom. Well, not fourth wall breaking, but you know it's you have your free walls and then there's the audience behind all the cameras. It's the same angles, very similar scenarios every week. So it's like, you do not have to pay very much attention to it yeah. visually. Um, yeah. Every now and then, I guess you would get like a visual joke or an interesting camera angle. It's incredibly rare. Um, I mean, this is the kind of show where like literally every scene that takes place outside is clearly green screen. So mm. it's, and that's what it is. It's like, it's, it's a little bit of a, a money laundering <laughs> scenario. Now, and I don't want to completely dismiss the writing as well, because I think there is a knack to the writing where it's it's not the most clever comedy. There's a lot of, like, smart, allegy jokes in there, like the Brainiac jokes, whether it's science or comic book references mm. or any of that stuff. Like, I don't want to dismiss 
the effort that probably does go into a lot of that, just consistently. But at the same time, I think having watched Big Bang Theory when I was younger, and season six was like 2012, so I guess that's when I roughly stopped yeah. watching it. So the amount of shows, in particular shows, that I've consumed since then that not only have much, much deeper character development and writing, but even just like the way they structure the show is just very... I mean, I think of BoJack, like the amount of episodes in BoJack that just really play with the structure of the episode or really, you know, go into a deep dive about the background of a character or even like the problematic backgrounds of certain characters and how... We have a character like Bojack from 2014 as, oh, you know, he's, it's Bojack. Oh, he's a, he's a washed-up, has-been actor, and he's problematic, and he's, he's a drug abuser, mm. and there's all these really ish, weird things he's done that they completely, by the end of the series, adapt to the Me Too culture movement of the time and have pumped that into relevancy in the show. And it's like, I don't think the Big Bang Theory's done anything even remotely near as clever as something like a show like that does and it doesn't necessarily mm. need to but it makes me look back on the big bang and you're like wow it's just 12 years of the same shtick well, i i think even to sort of echo what you're saying mm. but at least kind of uh, maybe grounded a little because i do think a show like bojack that is in a lot of ways actively subverting a lot of those like sure making going out of its way to challenge a lot of those episodic comic tell like comedic television tropes yeah um and to the point where they actively, they even com like they have people like Zach Braff appear in mm. an episode, or they make a Josh Radner joke. Of it. There, there, there's definitely an active challenge against that sort of like that sitcom era um, that had been right at that point, like embedded in pop culture for mm. the last two decades, um, three decades actually, really, with the with the 80s. And I think. What's interesting, though, and I do agree with what you're saying, is the fact that at the same time this show is running, I think How I Met Your Mother was running in relative parallels. I mean, it, it, there was a time there was definitely a div an overt crossover between the mm. two. It was 05 to 14, whereas this was 07 to 19. But there was a cross-section there, and it, it felt like the characters, and there was more heart in How I Met Your Mother, and definitely retrospectively watching both shows in a, as an adult, I think there's so much more going on in How mm. I Met Your Mother. It's still silly and it's still got those moments, but right. the heart is there. And then a step further, there's shows like Community or um, from what the little bit I've seen of The Good Place. Um, even other, there are other shows, I think, like like The Office and stuff, like mm. the way that they, they still have the comedy aspect. And I mean, the uh, balance in The Office is brilliant between yeah. like the humour and the, the pace of the jokes because there's no laugh track. Versus, like, the dramatic moments. Like, the, I mean, the, the Jim and Pam scene at the end of season two is, like, heartbreaking. Yeah. Genuine good stuff. And when, I, when I'm talking about structure for BoJack in particular, I'm talking about, like, like oh, look, the the casting of Diane, like, the whitewashing casting. Let's do an episode where the character looks back into her own past and how she's unable to recognize mm. her own culture she was born in. Like, that, it's, like, going into that layer and then you compare that to something like Sheldon, where one of the episodes I saw from season seven is, and I'm like, they almost got it. They almost got it. There, there's an episode where Leonard finds an unreturned DVD and he thinks uh, Sheldon's going to freak out about like, oh my God, you should have returned that 10 years ago. And he equates it to, okay, well, like you trivialize my 
um, the fact that this upsets me. I want you to wear this like scruffy, dirty jumper that's going to irritate your skin until you return the DVD. And that way you're going to feel like how I feel, which is like, oh, that that's a cool parallel for people who don't understand, say, autism or neurodivergent mm-hmm. in that sense. And, and place that onto a character who hasn't understood it until now. And mm. he's going to be the physical representation of that. And it's kind of like just the one line that almost acknowledges that. But then the episode kind of goes in a different direction. It ends up just being, oh, Sheldon's a dick. That's kind of the punchline at the end of the yeah. episode. And, and it, it gets close to doing things like that and never does. And from what I've seen from the show as it, as it sort of progressed, at best we get moments where he emotes. And that's yeah. sort of as much of his growth. Whereas... Like I said, when you see things like How I Met Your Mother, especially as they get towards the back end of the show, and they start to allude to what actually happened to the mother in that particular story, but also mm. there's just so much emotion going on for so right. many different characters. You know, these are characters that at first, like you said, they're basically in the the sitcom bubble where they're in a smart, wacky scenario, funny, funny, Yeah, there's your 20 minutes, see you next, but... I think by about, I think it's season six, there are like multiple episodes, which I still think are some of the best episodes of How I Met Your Mother and also of that particular genre, that mm. sick, that, like you said, the, the fourth wall sitcom um, if that's what you call it. Um, and there are episodes where there is no comedy, at least, or right. the comedy is so... Uh, over, you know, one of the characters' dads dies and it ends up being one of the, like, the best episodes at a funeral mm. and then another one figures out finds out they, that they can't have kids and that's a whole thing yeah um and you're just like man this is this is, this was a sitcom but it's that mo- like you said it's you've you've fallen in love with the characters you want to see them grow you want to see them develop mm. you want to see the explorations of actually what that character who that character yeah. is and yeah maybe big bang theory was either way too late in that um, or they just liked being that sort of set in your ways sitcom where characters only marginally changed, but nothing that was too. Uh, uh, the status quo hasn't shifted all that much in the twelve no. years, and and I say that is in like almost all the characters are married by the end of that show. Yeah, it's like I know how it ends. I've seen clips from the last couple of episodes. But that's so. not really development. Like they that mm. their whole goal wasn't to. But then there never really was a driving question in Big Bang Theory. Like, not really. It was just well, I guess like the driving thing is like the relationship between Penny and and Leonard. That's really an. But they first. get married like, well, they're not married in season seven, but I'm like they're definitely married by the end of the show. Yeah. So I guess it's like a Jim and Pam situation where it's like if that's the driving force of the show, it should have ended a few years earlier than it actually did. Yeah. And I say this not knowing exactly what season who gets married and when and what, but. That's it. The extent of any of the character development in the show is, oh, well, they got married. Yeah. And they're, they're still nerds, but now they're married with girls. And, and I think that's the Chuck Lorre aspect of it all, is that for a show about nerd culture, it's so focused on sex. And that was something I think I found really cool when I was 11 and 12. And now I'm watching it being like, oh, who gives It's like a watching shit? Two and a Half Men. <laughs> like when you see a clip from Two and oh, a Half yeah, Men, it's... you're just like, oh, that's just not nice. <laughs> well, this is why... And I haven't seen... Um, What's the what's the tech show? Oh my god, how am I figured the Silicon Valley? Isn't it just it's called Silicon Valley? I think it's Valley. called Silicon Valley. I've had people tell me that you need to watch that, Jay. You need to watch it. And I was like, I'm sure the reason people tell me that is because that's like a techie nerd show written by more techie nerd show writers. Yeah, and not Chuck Lorre. <laughs> I, I quite liked Mythic Quest. Like okay. the the the, t- the 
two seasons of that I thought right. were quite good. And that's because that's, that's produced by, um, oh, Rob McElwenny from okay. Always Sunny. He's one of the producers. Quite a few of the Always Sunny casts are in that show. And mm. that's quite fun. I mean, it, it definitely feels community-esque in its sort of depictions and its parody-esque yeah. things at times. But, um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was fine. There, mm. there were funny episodes in there, for yeah. sure. It was like Superstore meets Community. Right, gotcha. Which I, I still think <laughs> Superstore is like a really solid B show. Mm. Yeah. Like a good... Is it still running or is it? No, finished okay. last, start of COVID. The last season oh, okay. takes a lot of COVID into it, which I found funny, but some people groan at because talk... yeah i always wonder what bojack would have done if it lasted through covid yeah i mean that would have been really interesting but i'm I'm also kind of glad i don't know just watch the south park stuff that's yeah, that's, that's true that's, yeah that's pretty funny you can always get the social commentary with south park yeah can't go wrong but that that's really all i've seen the last week i'm gonna be I'll... very honest with you there Z. you did pretty well uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I got Ozark and Mr. Robot and all these other shows on my TV time now, and I'm fixated on Big Bang Theory and Malcolm in the Middle. Just, I, well, I can't help myself, Zeke. Well, I look, I, I have a couple that I could go through. Mm. I started with Loose. I started watching uh third season of Only Murders in the Building. Oh, cool. Um, which is the Martin Short and Selena. Steve Martin and Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez, yeah. Cool. Um, sort of trio, murder mystery. Um. Show the third season's very big. It's got mm. Paul Rudd and Meryl Streep in it. Oh, okay, wow. So it's the the, the production value has has really gone through the roof. Yeah, the um, check cleared. I look. <laughs> I'm only season. three episodes in, so I uh, of I think the whole season is out. Um, I'm still inclined to think that if Meryl Streep's the killer, and I'm saying this now, not sure. knowing she not is, not knowing, yeah. Um, I'm going to be very disappointed because I think... Is it obvious? It's kind of annoying. Like, the problem, the one problem with a murder mystery show, um, in previous seasons, there were there were people in it. Like, in the first season, like, there's a murder in the building, but... And Sting lives in the building. Okay. And that's kind of funny. Like, there's... Like, they think in an episode, Sting's the killer, but he's obviously not the killer. Right. Um, in the second season, Amy Schumer moves into Sting's apartment... And he's playing Amy Schumer. Mm. Um, and I don't like Amy Schumer. But I'm like, yeah, look, a comedian's kind of perfect in this film. Sure. Um, and Tina Fey's in it. And I was like, this is kind of like the right level. Like that Saturday Night Live. Mm. I don't mind those people so being is it, in it. So is it a season-long investigation? Yeah, yeah. So like the first season is right. a murder happens. Um, and they have to work out who done it in who the building. Yeah. And then... On the night where they work it out and they're celebrating, someone else gets murdered. So oh, that's I how see. season two starts. Okay. Season three is so it's a series long caper. Yeah. But oh my but goodness it's me! Funny, like it's, I mean, it's Martin Short and Steve Martin. The chemistry has been there for forty years. Yeah. So. But what I liked about the first two seasons is like those two obviously have that natural back and forth, and you wonder how does Selena Gomez fit into that dynamic, right? Um, and it works just really well. There's something about, um, her character. She's probably like, you know, she's in her twenties, but she's got that eclectic sort of, uh, dynamic. She bounces off them really well. Mm. There's a, she's pretty, it's pretty perfectly cast as a show. And the first two seasons were really interesting. And I've liked what I've seen in the, the third season so far. 
it's just a really fun show like it, it doesn't require a lot of brain power and it's and it's interesting and the, the first two seasons were very neat in that but it has that perfect balance of comedy and mystery to it yeah but it it, it is what it sounds it's like having it's two old guys <laughs> and a young person trying to solve these murders but like the whole point is they're old and they act old and oh, she's like young but it but it works. I think it's just a fun show. Yeah. I think that's the easiest way to, to kind of tie it up. But I've liked what I've seen so far. I just really hope that your big names aren't the ones that are killing. Because they've avoided that so far in the, the earlier seasons. You think at some point they're going to do it. If they haven't just started it. It's like, it. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's cool. Um, the other thing I watched and managed to tie up, which was good, nice. is I managed to pick up and watch the last four episodes of Poker Face. So I was, I was about to reference Poker Face in terms of your mystery whodunits. Yeah, so... Um, and that's per week, different cases. Yeah, sort so of, that's, yep. that's the uh, uh, Murder of the Week show with Natasha Lyon and obviously Ryan Johnson directing the series. Yeah. And it's kind of like an ode to, yeah, like that Murder of the Week. It's got a very, like, 80s vibe, 70s, like, 70s cinema vibe. Even, like, yeah. the opening crawl is very like that. And, um, yeah, look, looking back, I think there's some standout episodes. There's, in the last four episodes, there are all kinds of, of pop-ups, you know. Mm. Nick Nolte's in one episode. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in another mm. episode. Uh, Ron Perlman's in another oh, nice. episode. Like... It, it it doesn't it the star power across the ten episodes is insane. I think really. Ryan Johnson has that power. He's yeah. he's like a Wes Anderson in the sense of like everyone wants to work with him. Everyone. Yeah. And what he does what I like about the the way that the Ryan Johnson this is him challenging the formula again. Mm. And what Poker Face does really well, um, it's it's definitely pie. I don't know if it has been greenlit for a second season. Oh, okay. Um, but it's open. It's very much pined for a second season by the, the season finale, mm. which you'd hope so. I think the the concept definitely warrants uh, a second season. It's not because it's a murder of the week show. Yeah, exactly. You're focused on your, you've got the protagonist. You and want it, a likable really protagonist about, you want to stick with. Yeah, Johnson and his writers wanting to create these incredibly quirky murder scenarios that aren't like a murder mystery party episode mm. or, or like for, you know, an example is in one of the episodes, someone gets who runs a um, smoked meat business in okay. like the South yep. uh, is killed by smoke inhalation from the, the, the smoker oh, that's funny. in his caravan. And, and it's like really interesting because one of the things Johnson does over the course of the show to sort of challenge that murder aspect is we often see the murder play out and we know who the murderer is ahead of time. Mm. And it's actually the ability for how Lyon, uh, Natasha Lyons' character of Charlie, who has this innate ability to know when someone's lying, mm. like she's bullshitting. Um, and she just like, like, like she has Tourette's. She says like bullshit. Like oh, it just okay. like yeah. comes out like that. Gotcha. To sometimes her detriment. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Like she That's says cool. it, but like can't control herself saying right. it. That's cl- I didn't realize that part. Cause I knew she was, she could tell when someone was lying, but to associate, I mean, it's the exact same thing with the throwing up in Knives Out. Yeah. Where it's like, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. She's, yeah, a, she's I, a good hearted woman, think- but she 
froze up when she lies and then versus yeah interesting it's very similar like to that. yeah she's got like the diamas sort of uh, her appearance is very like she's kind of like this trailer trash sensei that's mm. kind of the vibe she's giving off yeah. she's like a happy go lucky she never has a lot of money she's drifting through the the america on on the run technically as a right. result of what happens in the the first episode which kind of sets in motion the whole season yeah but yeah, it's just there were some really good episodes in there and, and great ways of subverting some formula. Basically, sometimes we get introduced to the person that's about to get murdered, but sometimes we get introduced to the murderer straight away and yeah. we follow them through. Um, and then it's basically how Charlie is able to basically uh, break the case and mm. we're kind of watching her break through it and or just when she feels like that there's nothing now and she moves on she hears like a lie that just keeps her a little bit invested it's a fun show why is it reminding me of medium <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know why it's reminding me of medium Jeez, I'm just, now, like, cold case there you go um <laughs> so i it, do really need to see it. i really do it, it's a it's a fun show and it probably i'd be very surprised if it didn't get a second season on sure. stan because he's a stan original and to be honest it like it would less mm. pending writing strikes and stuff like that. Uh, well, that's it. That's it as well. You know, because it's writing and SAG as well. So it's yeah. like, there's very little you can do for a film that isn't already shot. Yeah, and even then, you got the big hitters like Dune that they want the press, they want their actors to come in and do press for the film, so they're going to delay even those as well. So yeah. no one's safe. So no one's really safe unless your film comes out literally in the next month. You're not safe. A very yeah, a very good uh, good series to be honest. A fun, nice. really good. You could watch them all. The best part is you you can pick it. Like I'd watch the rest of them with Lucinda's family. Like right. the first, the last four episodes, and they hadn't seen everything no, prior. But cool. they were able to quickly pick up. And nice, like that. So that's the beauty of that show. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all. Yeah, all I watched in the last week, apart from the film of the week. Excellent. Very nice. Well. I guess it's. Uh, do you have any career updates before we move into the film of the week? Oh, that's right. I'm I'm dying to talk about this deer, Zeke. Yeah, I love this deer. There we go. Well, the it's titular time for deer us to move into the film <laughs> of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week in the show, Zeke? We're watching the killing of a sacred deer. Good afternoon. You must be Martin. That's right. You must be Anna. That's right. I brought you some little gifts. That's very kind of you. It's a keyring with a musical note on it for Kim. Because I know she likes music. What a charming boy. How long have you known him? Quite some time. His father was a patient of mine. I wanted to say one more thing. I'm really sorry about Bob. It's nothing serious. No, it is. They will all get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. Understand? No, I don't. My mom's attracted to you. She's got a great body. He's got issues. Serious psychological issues. Dad! Bob's dying! Mark! You do realize, Stephen, we're in this situation because of you. After the untimely death of 16-year-old Martin's father on an operating table... Little by little, a deep, empathetic bond begins to form between him and the respected cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. Stephen Murphy. At first, expensive gifts 
and then an invitation for dinner will soon earn the orphan teenager the approval of Dr. Stephen's perfect family. I'm, I'm glad the story ends there, after the approval and they're all happy. That's it. And that's the end of the story. That actually is it. I love that's Thank you great. for our review of I know. The Killing of Next a Sacred Deer. Next week on deer. the show, The Surviving of a Sacred Deer. Yeah. <laughs> it's my example, Zeke. It's a metaphor. It's yeah. symbolic. It's it's no wonder it's these the two line. didn't <laughs> want to be friends in Banshees of Inishirin. Because, uh... Actually, no, they were quite friendly, though. Yeah, they were. See, they if Brendan Gleeson was in this movie, it would be a whole different scenario. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it is a bit of a strained relationship. That's funny. I, I keep forgetting that connection. Yeah. That they're it, both in those respective that, films. Uh, that, the, the, what is it, how many clicks do you get from one to the other is, is one for this. How oh, you... yeah, like how many IMDb links you have to click for yeah. to connect the two. It would be... Uh... We're what, like eight away from Tarantino? Yeah. That's... I'm like two away from a Tony Collette, which is pretty cool. Well, we both would be. Is that how... Oh, is that true? No, no, that's not true. We're both on the same path to Tarantino. Yeah. Because of, um... Uh... Because of, of James Mooney on Disconnected worked on Mao.com. Or was it Mao.tv? Mao.com. I think it's Mao.com. Who's DOP, worked on Hounds of Love, etc., etc., etc. You get the picture. Oh. It, it chains, Zeke. It's really I'm cool. I'm glad that... You know yeah. that very obscure <laughs> fact. <laughs> I only knew like the first third of that pathway, and then Paul Rudd's in there somewhere, nice. and then uh, Bruce Willis, I think, is the final connection to. I'd love Tarantino. to like meet one of these people one day and be like, "I'm only eight clicks away from you on IMDb." <laughs> like, What's the rule? Everyone's only like how many degrees of separation away? There's a rule. Eight it's degrees. Of eight degrees is eight. That's not a lot. No. But still less than me and Tarantino, so we need to fix that very soon, actually. Um, geez, we got off topic real quick. No, that's, the killing that's okay. Of a sacred Maybe because we're actively trying to avoid the uncomfortability <laughs> of this film. Um, obviously, Yorgos Lanthimos, the last time we talked about him was on episode seven. Holy moly, Dogtooth. Um, Way back when. Is an insane amount, as you said, over four and a bit years ago. Mm. Um, and it's quite interesting because around that time we were talking about The Favourite and sort of, because that was the more recent mm. one we watched. And obviously, out, yeah. uh, as you were saying last week, his latest film is uh, Poor things, yep. taking out uh, The Golden Lion at Venice. Mm. So um, what a great time to talk about uh, a film that... Um, I, I don't know. I, for me personally, I've heard the title. Uh, I know this this film has a lot of acclaim, but obviously, when I think uh, like when you say to someone Yorgos Lanthimos, they normally bring up the Lobster or they bring up uh, the Favorite. Yeah. Now um, this one's sort of uh, placed between the two of them on the timeline, and mm. um, yeah, I think I think now I'm starting to get him. I okay. Think. Interesting. I think um, I'm starting to understand his weirdness. Like I, mm. like I understood a lot of the themes in those other films that I've talked about. But sure. I'm starting to get the style, mm. um, which, you know, when we talked about Dogtooth, maybe this is time or all these facts. You know, we, we sure. had Jesse New on the show, yep. who's a, was a very passionate fan of 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 his. Um, Still, as I imagine. 
Yeah, I, I, mean, I imagine it still, <laughs> still is. And obviously that film being so uh, aggressive in its oddness, it, mm. it didn't uh, shy away from its absurdist nature and its its uh, flat flat dialogue that's very uh, transparent in its uh, wants and needs. Yeah, which uh, this film does very much so as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, that film obviously touches obviously on some very uncomfortable topics. Um, go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. Um, if you want to. And, and, and I think that this one does too. But I guess it's a, it's a little more subtle about it at, at points, uh, I think. I definitely feel like it's more than his other films, which we just mentioned. Um, I mean, this almost does feel like the spiritual successor to Dogtooth in that sense. There's a few other things going on, but the I remember when I first saw it years ago, I even thought back then, this is it's about the corruption of a family. And in a lot of ways, Dogtooth is as well. And that's all sort of internal in the sense of the, the father figure of the family, like mm. the you know, hyper-control and helicopter parroting and trying to shield your children away from the outside world. And it completely backfires in that film in all sorts of messed up ways. And here it's quite different because there there is no helicopter parroting per se on the same level, but it is about a family through initially external sources, but then also internal sources where they they start to turn on each other throughout the film for for preservation and survival and for that reason i think it is the the corruption of a family so mm. i think it is kind of a natural progression from dogtooth he's made a few films between those two including the lobster where where we, we get his first collaboration with colin farrell but yeah for me i think that's part of where i was able to conceptualize his i guess his filmography in total and I get what you mean by in terms of, like, you're finally getting him. Because, like like I said last week, when we said we were going to watch this film. I was surprised by my three-and-a-half-star review from years mm. ago. I was like, wow, I, thought I for some reason I have, like, a much higher memory of it in my head. And re-watching, I'm like, not only is it sort of achieving all these, these ideas and themes and the corruption of family and this... I guess the whole thing's a giant metaphor for, like, a patient... Or what, the grief a doctor experiences when he loses a patient which can and sometimes is completely beyond their control. Mm. Um, but just that this film is a showcase on how to completely unsettle your audience. More more than any of these other films I've felt, this film is like trying, actively trying in every way, shape and form to unsettle you. And whether that's through performance, through the music, the music in this film is horrifying and it's used very horrifyingly mm. in so many ways. Um, but just like the image of, of the characters crawling around because their legs are completely, you know, given up on them. The Kubrick-esque hallway tracking shots and zooms. Mm. Just like taking all those bits and pieces. And it's just an unsettling film to watch. And I think I was more creeped out by this viewing than I was in my initial viewing. Yeah. Which says a lot about the power of the film. Because I knew where it was going and I knew how it ended. And still, it had that effect on me. Yeah. I... I, I, I wholeheartedly agree I, I think what we're seeing is is someone with this this godlike complex mm. in in dr murphy and and basically what we're watching is the systematic destruction of that godlike uh mentality mm. um with you know at at a time and and this comes from the way that the you know we can talk about the cinematography and like you said the it the unconventional uh cinematography at first but yeah. Um. Definitely. Now, 
looking back on his his catalog that I've seen so far, it makes more sense. But this this disembodied ethereal high angle that lords over as mm. as Murphy moves through the halls is this almost uh, perception of how he's. It's not in a way that's trying to make look Murphy look vulnerable, but it's actually more a, a POV shot. It's yeah, trying to it kind of has the inverse effect of that, where it's instead of making him look small, it kind of makes him look towering. Yeah. almost like he's con- in control of everything that's in this wide-angle view. I never thought of it like that, and even the opening shot that I joked about earlier with the the you know pulsing heart, the music that plays not even under it, over it, uh, very loud operatic music. It kind of gives you that that sense of the beauty and perfection of his profession yeah. of what he does and the control he has in this situation. Like you said, the, the loss of control as the movie progresses. And, and absolutely. And we, we see that when the, the camera becomes more eye level and then down to that low angle by the time he's got, <sighs> um, Barry Keegan's character. So I'm glad uh, we do this together. We pick stuff up all the, but that's the point, Jake. No, it's good. So, but doing it for five no, but years. It's so almost. spot on. It's true. Cause I'm uh, thinking about that iconic shot at the end and, even the close-ups of him as he's twirling around, they're all from a low angle looking up. Yeah. And it's the inverse effect where he feels like kind of meek and vulnerable in that scenario. It's it's incredible. Yeah, and and, and this comes back to the unconventional storytelling that comes from mm. all the way from Lanthimos's actual story yeah. and plot to the way he uses the camera. And, and it's so interesting when he, yeah, creates this ethereal thing as Murphy moves through the, the halls of the hospital, like it's his domain. It's, yeah. you know, he, he is doing this, you know, he's a cardiovascular surgeon, a cardi- uh, cardiologist. Mm. And, you know, we, you know, I'm struggling to pronounce the, the title <laughs> of the job. And that's sort of the the effect that this complex has is, is he's in this incredibly uh, well-paying profession, highly intellectual profession. Mm. And yet, stumbles upon a character that he initially feels sorry for, this mm. socially awkward, uh, seemingly uh, mentally unwell uh, character mm. um, who basically reveals sort of at the film's close to its almost technically the end of the first act, but it's a long way in mm. that all of these bad things are about to happen to his family and yeah. he can't stop them with his intelligence and all the intelligence of the people around him. Mm. Um, and- it's very exorcist like in the sense that that film covers like medical science versus religion. And and it's very similar here, except it's medical science versus essentially witchcraft is, yeah. is what we're experiencing here. And, and like you said, it's not even just the, the frustration that the doctors and all the, the, the brilliant minds around him, uh, not only can't figure out what's going on, but dismiss it of like, oh, well, there's actually nothing wrong here. Like, let's dismiss him from the hospital. Mm. Um, but his own frustration, and again, this goes to the unsettling nature of the film, where like, the, just the the visual of him throwing his son around, who's limping and and constantly smacking his face against the floor, and it's like, that is a man who we've seen up until this point. Like you said, he is in his domain. He is in control. He's empowered. He has no idea how to handle this situation. Nah. And and what's even more frustrating is it's like you said, Martin gives him I love that scene by the way, where Martin it's it's almost like he's trying to read the script as quickly as possible. It's like, Alright, this is what's gonna happen to your family, they're all gonna die and he's gonna bleed from his eyes and oh, okay, there I said it. It's out there now. <laughs> I love that performance that he gives. But even though he feels so powerless in that moment, it's only because he's trying to find a way to solve it without killing one of his 
family members. There's an element of denial, but it's like the, the solution, he was told the solution. This is how you fix this problem. And like you said, it's almost like a God complex of, no, nah, I can figure this, I can solve yeah. it, and and everyone's safe, and everyone's happy. And he, he can't, and he's... Yeah, yeah and it's brilliant. And it is really interesting because this this comes back to that weird um, minimalist uh, set dressing and design that this mm. this film has. It it has this uh, artificial look to it. It it's um, a lot of them are the sets are very minimalist. We like and they're quite awkward um, in their sort of layout and their mise en scene. Mm. I, I mean. And the sequences are shot to sort of almost complement this with, like I said, these high angles, sort of high wide angles yeah. too that we you can see everything. Um, and we see a lot of them. And the only times we ever uh, push in or we have these frame and frame shots is to is basically to show Martin's sort of oppressive effect that he's having on the family mm. or the way he's encroaching in on them psychologically, mentally, and and obviously for some of them Even physically. physically yeah. Um, and this is such an interesting uh, way of, of conveying this. I, I think that this film is the first, the film that out of all of the, the Lanthimos films I've, I've watched, this is the one I feel like I comprehend the most and I think has a, the most going for it. I think mm-hmm. it's an incredibly layered and considered and it, it's someone who's been working their craft and really finding that, that auteur voice. Yeah, and I think it's quite a here. while at that point, 2017, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm... It is one of those things where it's like, yeah, I do like Dogtooth, and I, I find the lobster quite funny. Mm. Like, oh, there's definitely intentional comedy throughout the lobster. Um, in its, and I think it's that's obviously deliberate, like you said. It's, mm. um, and whereas this film is just eerie and and is so uncomfortable the mm. whole way through, and. And the ending, the you know that big climactic scene, like you said, it, the way it's shot, it goes back to the wide, but it's at a lower angle. It's awkward. It's not a pretty or flattering shot in terms of its artistry, even if, even in its uh, uh, emotional depth. It's so despondent at that point because the family mm. has completely lost all emotional regulation or, or care for each other. It's like you said, they're all in the, the states of self-preservation. Yeah. And, and even in talk, talking about the visuals of that scene, their costume designs where they're all sort of hogtied and with masks over their heads. And, and even, even Steven himself, who at the start of the film is, is a, is an incredibly snappy dresser and a very handsome man. He's wearing much more sort of, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Regular clothes. He's put the beanie over his head, and he just—they all look so, they—they they all look so weathered from mm. the experience that they've had. That, like you said, it—it it just adds to this unflattering look at the end when he's spinning around. I mean, that image. I—I will be honest. Watching this for the second time, I wasn't a hundred percent sure I remembered who dies. <laughs> who <laughs> is I, the sacred deer? Exactly. But I—the visual of him with the whole family around him and him twirling, that is an image that has been burned into my retinas for the last few years. Yeah. It just absolutely... And the whole experience leading up to that is just horrifying. I will say, as much as we talk about our relationship with Yorgos Lamphamus throughout this podcast and talking about Dogtooth and The Favourite and obviously poor things around the corner, there is one real reason that it's cool we covered this episode today... And it's because the date that the function takes place, they mention, is September 16th, 
1997, or of course, 40 years after that, 2017, which is the weekend we just had. Today's the 18th of September. There you go. So they look at us go. Totally right the, deliberate. Right on the money. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Um, and look, those aspects are really interesting. You know, the, those, you know, you talk about that first conference. That's where we really see the dynamic between uh, Stephen and his wife. Mm, Anna, uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, Anna. And... Um, we see that they both have this sort of uh, they they're very proud of their lives and mm. the dynamic they have in their relationship you know both are very from very intelligent backgrounds wealthy backgrounds they they've got this 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 blue-blooded nature to them that's mm. um and they they definitely carry this this I'm better than you attitude and and that comes back to the the whole uh dialogue exchange where they have where they get asked to stay out later but they have surgery at six in the morning mm. but so does the the other guy their friend um who is named uh, i kept calling him the um the colleague in my <laughs> uh i think it's matthew um matthew williams yeah matthew williams um played by bill camp um, but you're 100 right yeah they don't really disclose his name but it's that whole dynamic where they're basically like you should also you know rest and um, well, and- I, the the thing that I took away from that scene, there's sort of two examples in the dialogue there to show that as husband and wife, they're on the same page where they're both quite insistent about this idea of getting rest before the surgery next day. But the other one, and I think a typical film uh, would not subvert this in the sense that when they're talking about their kids, there's the conversation of, oh, yeah, like Ben's, we're going to buy him a piano soon. We just haven't had time yet, but he's like getting piano lessons. And the other one is, oh, my daughter started menstruating last week. And the thing every other film in the world would do is that as soon as that couple are alone in the car on the way back home, they get to an argument like, why would you say that? And they don't. That Nobody skips a beat in that part of the conversation. And it's mm. like, as husband and wife, they're very much on the same page at this point. I mean, that just comes back to the the uh, sort of the way that he does that candid dialogue. You know, it eliminates all of that ambiguity and simplifies... Mm. Uh, every ask like it simplifies these complex like you said archetypes narratives you know it comes it comes back to when martin asks to see steven shirtless to see how much hair he's got yeah. you know <laughs> there are these incredibly odd um sort of disarming comments that yeah. we consider disarming in our in our socio-cultural perceptions because it's not ethical or morally correct but yeah but in, in a lanthimos really. film that's just how characters speak <laughs> Um, and oh, I think it, it 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 goes to sort of create a bit of a wedge between us, the audience, and the characters in this film, which I think is almost essential. Well, this is the question: Is it essential? Because I feel like a film like this, where they had maybe more naturalistic performances, maybe where the lines being delivered were a bit more naturalistic, or maybe even going leaning into the mumblecore mm. side of things to really try and make it like, wow, like we we relate to these people because we talk the same. Um, versus, yeah, the super wooden weird off-kilter taboo dialogue exchanges and I, I akin it to that of like an emotional dartboard that an actor has and like every part of the dartboard you can lean into a different emotion and the majority of the lines to live in this film they hit it dead center in the middle of the dartboard mm. but it's that and this is that thing this is that mirroring reality of of the fact that you know this film's almost like conducting that surgery surgery mm. We watch this surgical uh, deconstruction of this family 
by Martin. Yeah. You know, it, it like you said, this the precision you're talking about when you're throwing that dart at the board is that order and control yeah. that is deliberate in this film. It's not about, you know, it's not like um, the other films, I don't think, Talanthamos. I mean, there is definitely, like, you know, we took the, they're definitely surgical and methodical, but they're in different ways. It, you know, in The Favourite, it's about two rivals for the mm. affection of one person. So their their methodology is, is more uh, against one another, not in, in Martin's sort of deconstruction of this family it's yeah. it's a it's a bit different mm. um and well, here it, it feels you're right like surgical and, and pointed and and unlike those other films there's a clear change in their delivery by the end of the film they're yelling and screaming upset i mean the first instance where we really see steven kind of lose his cool and and his line delivery starts to kind of move from the center of that dartboard is when he's trying to kick martin's door down and he, you know, he's mm. like i'm gonna i'm gonna kill you and you know, I'm, I'm going to do this like your mother wanted. <laughs> but it's interesting because he is the only one that actually gets really any form of emotional range because mm, uh, yes. Kidman's Anna doesn't get that same range. What we're watching is is he is atoning for his sins and yes. it comes back to the power of that first shot. Why do we have uh, a whole surgery sequence that finishes with uh, Murphy taking off his bloodied gloves and yeah. throwing them in the bin. Well, I mean, I see that. That's that whole point is that it's that he has that godlike power, but he also thinks he's exonerated of all the blood on his hands, mm-hmm. like metaphorically. As, soon as those gloves come off, as yeah. soon as those gloves come off, and this comes back to as we discover, as as Martin starts to reveal more information, and his and obviously William, his his anesthesiologist, mm. reveals is is the fact that. Both of them thought the other one was intoxicated and was responsible yeah, for Martin's yeah. dad's death. Um, There's a little bit of that lying as well because he also lies about how he met Martin in the first place. He's like, "Oh, it's like a friend of my daughter's from school, and this and that." And then, then you, as as Martin's sort of unhinged obsess- obsession becomes more disturbing, that we as the audience learn more about the truth of, like, "Oh, it was his dad that he was the surgeon on," and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and it, it is, and and that becomes like you said. That's the the power of of Kean's delivery and and his frantic and mm. really messed. Uh, can he just play a normal person? Like, does he play? <laughs> does he ever play just like a normal dude anymore? Like, is he just banned from playing normal characters? <laughs> He's banned. Um, He's not allowed. But it, I guess Eternals. He plays a Eternals. yeah. He plays a hero in Eternals. So I guess it's like the closest he gets to being like okay. normal. Um, oh, he's in Dunkirk. I forgot about that. Yeah, because he is. Yeah. You always think of Harry Styles and Dunkirk. That's, That's true. Like a white thing you do. That. But um, yeah, otherwise, Batman, Banshees, Green Knight, American Animals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's always has layered oh, yeah, performances the, in all of those films. Yeah. Um, and it is it is interesting because I think that that's what that's trying to say is, is the fact of the matter is, um, you know, Stephen... Murphy was intoxicated when he operated on Martin's dad mm-hmm. and, and, and killed him as a result of that sort of uh, neglect. And, and this comes back to, I think, like, Lanthimos is obviously using the parallels of, of how much faith we put into doctors and particularly yep. these very acute specialised surgeons to cu- you know cure us or to fix us. And the fact of the matter is we have no control in those scenarios. So... Mm-hmm. There's a deliberate choice there in making the profession that doctor, not just 
a charismatic tutor at a you know <laughs> to cite white noise again. Um, no, 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 but no, uh, but you're exactly right. In, in terms of when we go into a, if we lay in a hospital bed or we go into a hospital, we go in for surgery. We are basically giving our lives to someone else mm. on a silver platter, and we just hope to God that they take care of that with the precision that we hope they have and that we wake up on the other side of that. And I mean, I've never been to surgery before, but I can imagine how scary it must be to just completely give yourself into the hands of someone else. So we, we put a lot of value mm. in doctors and surgeons and these people we rely on to, you're right, fix us, cure us and save us. And we, you know, when this film, I think again, is a giant metaphor for the guilt that a doctor who fails would have but we do see the other side of it because martin does represent the other side of it the scene when you know nicole kidman's asking like why punish us if he's the one that's done you wrong and he can't really emote it. he talks about this idea of him and his father like the the thing that makes them unique and, and together is the way they eat spaghetti and it it almost crushed him mm. more to find out that 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 everyone eats spaghetti the way that he does than than the actual death of his father and and he admits he's like is this just is this fair i don't know but this is this is how he relinquishes his frustration his dad's life was given in the hands of someone else and he failed and whether it was because he was drunk you know it's up in the air it's Mm. it's the the characters can argue about it all day long but the point is he failed and that's martin's way of of dealing with that i kind of love that the supernatural element of the film is never really there's no 30-minute segment where they find out how he did this witchcraft curse. But, it, but it, it, I guess at the end of the day, that once again, I, I would argue, well, I mean, we saw the like the lobster is a world where people turn yeah. into animals if they don't find a mate. So yeah. uh, at the end of the day, it also comes back to the, the you know, I, I was thinking of that when, mm. you know, even when you were just saying it just then, and it's kind of like the inexplicable nature of, of the vich in a way. Yeah. You know, th- there's not... There obviously is like a witch present mm. in the the witch, but there is a lot of it is left up to kind of us just sort of accepting what's going on in this weird and trivial yeah. way. This and, inexplic- and all films are like that to an extent. Um, I mean, we talked about it in Toy Story. Yeah. <laughs> to what to point does Toy Story need to motivate the surrealistic elements of its own story? Yeah. It I, really doesn't. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, it... it we, you know, like you said, we just sort of accept this is happening because the important thing is what we're watching is is someone that doesn't have control and mm. and basically, um, you know, the 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 curse that Martin puts on this family, um, could almost be you know symbi- symbolic of of an inexplicable illness befalling one of them or multiple of them and and yeah. we're basically what we're trying to do is we're it's that atonement aspect this character that has this perfect reality and mm. and this perfect perception of themselves um is being completely de- deconstructed and kind of called to the forefront and yeah. it it basically is exposing the the skim deep nature of of not just him but his family and that comes back to you know the kids too with with Kim and it's uh, Ben Kim and, and Ben and Ben and and the fact that um when they're both bound to beds and they know Martin's downstairs, mm. they don't freak out or emote. They just, Kim just starts talking about 
wanting Ben's MP3 player when he dies <laughs> because they know that she knows that they're going to choose her. It's very him. it's very childlike, isn't it? Like I I distinctly remember that being told by my friends at the age of 10 like, "Oh, if you die, can we have like your PS3?" <laughs> <laughs> it's so yeah it's like those interactions are still very childlike even in the face of imminent death and it, yeah it's interesting because like you also have someone like kim who is attracted to martin and she's even replicating the pose that her mother does in bed when she's trying to get him to i guess sleep with her yeah it's not slightly uncomfortable but <laughs> But um, I, and it's interesting that what that results in towards the end of the film is when she's desperate to be to you know preserve herself, she crawls down into the basement and and basically begs him to to let her live. You're gonna, you're gonna <laughs> laugh. I, I did oh, yeah? make a joke about white noise, but she is actually in white noise. Oh, that's great. She's one of the daughters <laughs> in white noise. <laughs> so uh, Ellie Raffy, I think her name is. Uh, it's sad because we haven't quite mentioned white noise every single episode this year, but we almost have, and I think that's quite important to acknowledge. <laughs> um, he plays Kim Murphy, and I actually think her performance is fantastic. Oh, that, I mean, yeah, I think she in particular. There's something about her when I was watching, and I was I was very like her dynamic with um, obviously Barry Keogh, yeah, is oh Keegan um, is is very good like that. Like you're talking about that scene where she's mimicking um, what Anna does in bed, and mm. and that's that's obviously uncomfortable. That comes back to that uncomfortability nature and the artificial sort of storytelling that Lanthimos is trying to employ there. Where, how does she know that pose? Like, how does she? Yeah, is it, it's almost is like a, a psychological, her, like a, a hereditary psychological thing. Mm. Or, or you something. know what I thought was a missed opportunity at the very end of the film when she's eating, putting the tomato sauce on the chips, and she's eating it. I thought they were going to play this clever thing where she leaves the chips to last, just like Martin does. And I was surprised they didn't quite do that. And again, that's speaking to that psychological behavior. I mean, we see it in Breaking Bad, but Walt mimics like the behavior of the people he kills. And and there was a line there where I think, is it Martin that says that he took on traits of his dad after he died? There was some conversation mm. about that. Yeah, well, that comes back to the, the use of Zoom. So I've talked mm. a little bit about like the high angle. We talked about yeah. the low angle. Um, and then we've got the zoom ins and the zoom outs. So... The sort of one of the big things that you can kind of attribute to those are, is power. And, yeah. you know, we've talked about the godlike complex and basically how um, Martin basically takes uh, the godlike power away from Stephen and mm. makes it his own. And that yeah. happens from really the moment he says that line in the, in the diner in the yeah. hospital where he basically says the curse to... Yeah. To steer, and Spells we don't it see it overtly, me. but by the end, you know, it comes back to that scene that you're talking about just there where he's with Anna and he's eating spaghetti yeah. and talking about how uh, the way that he eats spaghetti is, is apparently the way his dad eats spaghetti, but what he yeah. discovered is everyone just eats spaghetti exactly. like that. It's not a unique trait. But there's this weird thing where he then says those lines where he's like, look, it's really horrible what's happening to your family, but if it has to happen... It has to happen. Mm. And as that's happening, the camera's just pushing in on him and it's yeah. zooming out of Anna because at the start of that scene, she's come in 
with all of the power and it's been Mm -hmm. completely stripped from her because she went from the nice intellect aspect and it starts to get chipped away as he starts making those comments about uh, uh, his mum being into Stephen and being quite Mm -hmm. flirtatious and that doesn't really shake her until that that monologue happens with the spaghetti and and the only thing that breaks those zoom-ins and those zoom-outs is is him doing those extreme close-ups of fiddling with the spaghetti and (laughs) there's just something about that scene yeah the fact that it's weird, but it's also it's uncomfortable and and powerful, um, and it it's a I bit think, hypnotic. Is yeah, what I would use as well. But it, they don't strain away from that. They 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 another one is is they zoom out when Farrell's breaking down, crying outside because yeah. he just it doesn't know what to do. They zoom out to the the front room of the house to. And he quickly looks back to see no one's there because he doesn't want anyone to see him crying. Yeah. Um, which is that ultimate nuclear family conceivement of, <laughs> of men don't cry, isn't it? Um, which... Well, it, it goes back to the the line or the the phrase I always love is that is that comedy is just tragedy but in a wide shot, and it almost kind of points to that where we start in the close up of him crying as the further we get back and the more we see of the his surroundings. It's like the absurdity of the situation starts to sort of relax into the audience. And mm. not that I think there's really any comedy at all to be found in this film, but I, I, I think there is something to be said about that, in particular that scene, that well, zoom I, out. I mean, even the, like you said, that final sequence where he's literally playing Russian roulette with, mm. a, with a rifle, there's this weird moment of uncomfortability, but it's sort of done in this... Like I said, it takes all the dramatic, the conventional dramatic techniques and throws them in the bin. Yeah. It goes, we're going to have no music. We're just going to have the acoustics of the room. No the, one's going to be... The funny sound of his feet going as he's like moving around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as he shoots and he misses the first two times, mm. um, we don't hear... And I know they're all they're all muzzled, but they all don't. We don't hear a lot of emotion out of any of the characters. A couple of shocks, gasp, but yeah, not. Yeah, we see no like a body bleeding, tense up. Yeah, you know, and it is weird because it weirdly takes out all the emotion, yet kind of fills it in in a completely different way. Yeah, the like, silence is it's almost makes it more scary in a way because, yeah. like you said, it's the music in this film is it's it's very sinister. And mm. very in your face, and at times the sound design and the music kind of uh, dominate the dialogue, where you can barely even hear what it's like. They clearly did an ADR this scene, like when he's throwing all the kitchen appliances around everywhere. It's like I, from the sound, it's like I don't think they re- recorded over this. Like they just let all the crashing sounds of of um, you know, like forks and plates and things sort of dominate mm. his voice. He did his own pretender, he just, <laughs> just like well, we did. Well, that's it, and it's um, and that that's completely reversed in that final sequence where they don't do anything to dominate the the scene itself. It kind of lets it play out, and and in a way, I could see someone finding it comedic, even though the scenario is absolutely mm. horrific. And in regards to the characters not overly reacting to it, I think it's like there's a part of all of them that have accepted like, well, like this is it. There's no, there is no control anymore. Yeah. Whoever dies, dies. You know, to bring it back to that playing God analogy of like, oh, it's up, the the Lord is going to pick what happens. 
But it, and we must surrender end, to that. They have all um, completely kind of denounced love for each other at that point, yeah. one way or another. I mean, Anna has um, had illicit relations with um, Stephen's co-worker, mm-hmm. trying to gain information. Um, their daughter has went from this sort of quiet, well, from a choir girl to this smoking uh, person that actively uh, is aggressive towards her parents in a lot of ways mm. is, is, you know, telling them to F off and, yeah. you know, that's, and, um, well, Anna even says like a mother, she's a mother and she's like, ah, oh, kill one of the kids. We can have another one. <laughs> so yeah, the, their values are all getting absolutely, cr- or at least uh, the, the values that we associate with those, you know, like you said, the suburban family of mm. family or the nuclear family stereotype those are all getting crushed, like the loving daughter and the sweet son. And to be fair, the sweet son, that doesn't really melt away too much. Um, but no, the loving mother, is she's gone. Yeah. <laughs> she wants her kids to die. But he he he's very, like, apathetic and, and quite difficult in the first half of the film. And mm. at best, he just sort of says what they want to hear. But at that point, that's they're no longer those people. Yeah. So... His death kind of makes the most sense. They actually lose the most. I I by, agree by him dying mm. out of all three of them. The other the other two are in a much darker place, and their relationships are already severed. So, and in a way, like they're the ones that have fallen from grace in the pursuit of self preservation. So it, it's kind of like this twisted. What did you expect ending that they're the ones who survive? And when you get to that final scene and where they're all sitting in the diner it's all and Martin slow-mo. walks in, it's just like the I, I love that it, it's so bold. It's not really trying to tell you how to feel in that scene, but there's this feeling of acceptance, understanding that, that there's no conflict between Martin and the family and uh, they walk off in silence. No, but, so but, but it, it, it genuinely comes back to that sort of point where Martin was saying, well, this was going to happen to you. Mm. I actually can't control this. This is just what happens to you. And, yeah. um, so it almost has, like you said, it has that empty feeling there at the end, but at the same time, what happened kind of happened. It, it, it does have sort of the weird darkness aspects of it. So things like Banshees of Inner and where, mm. Brendan Gleeson lays out his motives very quickly, and yep. when fo- when he follows through with those, um, and everything happens in that film, and we're just left with two people standing on the beach, sort of just accepting the relationship between the two of them is over. Yeah, it is empty, but it's also kind of what we. What did you expect? What yeah. did you expect? Yeah, exactly. Um, and. You know, I, I think that's what, like you said, that's what Lanthimos is doing in this. And he, and he does this in, in probably all of his films. I mean, you know, Farrell turns into a lobster. And <laughs> um, in The the Favourite, we sort of get this kind of weird, amb- ambiguous... I can't even remember the ending of The Favourite. It's the one with all the rabbits. It, the, yeah, they the cross over all the rabbits, rabbits. And it's sort of the analogue that she has succumbed to the role of the, the rabbit that's, that's been dominating... I mean, the, the, all of Lanfamosa's ending shots, the lobster with her about to take her own eye out, like yeah. that's, those are all imprinted into my brain. Like, he is a fantastic visual storyteller. Yeah. Unlike the Big Bang Theory. No. If only the Big Bang Theory was shot like a Lanfamos film. That's it. That's all there is to it. <laughs> that's all we needed. 
That's all we needed. Can I read you, before we get into our highlight scene, Zeke, can I read you this quote? So the first time I watched this film, we were doing the podcast. It was the Irishman episode, 43, Yep. when I first talked about this film. And in my notes from that episode, this is the quote that I wrote. And I can't believe it because I completely and utterly disagree with what I wrote here. This is why I love this podcast. We can go back and self-critique our own critiques. The music is the only tie to a sense of unease and creepiness at the start of the film. Without it, the story would... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Without it, the story would feel quite typical and uneventful. I do say the start of the film. Mm. And that is true. The first 20 minutes of the film, if not for the music, you would not get that eerie, creepy sense to it. I agree the first 20 minutes of the film, that's the case. Mm. But once you get to the part where the families are getting these deformities and and Martin's mother's sucking on Stephen's fingers, and once you get to that part of the film, then, I mean, there's a lot more going on than just the music to creep you out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I misread my own note. That makes a bit more... That makes a bit more sense to me. Zeke. Yeah. What's what's your highlight scene? Gee. There's probably quite a few you could pick in here. Um... I think what I'll I'll, I'll settle for, um, yeah, I I honestly I could probably pick quite a few. I think that the the impactful nature of that opening surgery scene mm. in the context of the film is very important to talk about. Um, but I'll, I'll go with uh, sort of the the probably the interrogation sort of scene that occurs between. Uh, Stephen and and Martin and oh, and, and, know, in which uh, Stephen definitely loses his cool and starts sort of walloping on on Martin and and then reaches for the the rifle and and threatens to shoot him. There's a lot of power in that scene and it, and we're once again we're talking about how he he sort of subverts the traditional uh, angles of power mm. um, and how we look at them and the fact that in that whole scene Farrell is in the dominant high angle position yet has no power in the scene. Yeah. Um, from Martin's stoicness and and um, to the point where you know he bites his own arm mm-hmm. and and it, it it's genuinely disturbing, but it's also kind of embodies kind of the film at that point. It's it's not even it's not unlike a scene from say The Dark Knight where Batman's like pummeling the Joker and he's on the floor just laughing because he's like nothing you can do with all your strength. Mm. You're right. Again, the way the cameras are positioned, the way the characters are standing, you would think the power dynamics are the exact opposite of what's actually the case. So it is a clever sort of subversion of of the way you would typically cover a scene like that and represent mm. those characters. Um, my highlight scene, we already talked about it quite a bit. It would be the spaghetti scene. And um, for all the reasons we mentioned, this idea that it, it sort of best represents the other side of the guilty doctor not trope, but theme that this film explores and the idea of like, well, looking at it from Martin's perspective, there is a sense of frustration and like, what what would you do if there was someone like Stephen that you, you antagonize? Mm. You know, this is the man responsible for my father's death and uh, we can get into the nuance of, of how responsible is he? It's not like he's the one that caused the car accident, but who else do you blame in this scenario and how else does that blame manifest into mm. what ends up being this sort of witchy curse he puts yeah. on not hateful Stephen. vendetta exactly 
Exactly. I will retcon one thing um, okay. to do with the with the lobster. I completely forgot the ending of the lobster and had to double check it because it's been so long since I watched the lobster. <laughs> I was um, going to say I don't think he turned into a no, lobster he didn't. Again. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, but I'll retcon that. I know but... uh, you're fine. Um, it has been that long since I've watched it. But I remember um, the last shot of her in the bathroom. I remember the steak. I, I just saw the picture and was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's been a long week, Jake. No, I, um, I mean, hey, it's been a while since either of us have seen that film. Yeah, and they're they're all quite odd. <laughs> they're all but quite even, great. But I mean, he's but got... It, but it is interesting, like you said, shots that burn into your retinas. Yeah. Like, the fact is, I can barely remember... I like the favourite, don't get me wrong, but I can remember maybe two shots and one of them is... Just doesn't that? I was thinking, doesn't that film end with just a bunch of rabbits? <laughs> like, like, and I, I, you know what the weird thing was? I genuinely was like, how does us end again? Like Jordan Peele's Us, because I thought I, that I might end shot. with rabbits, but that it's starts a with rabbits. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the last shot is a drone shot. It's a it's big the hand, wide the hand hands holding. across America. Yeah. So that. that could be a good guessing game. We should do that at some point in the podcast. First and last shot. Yeah. What is the first and last shot of blank? We just make each other guess first and last shots. That would be pretty cool. That would be cool because I'm I'm remembering quite a lot yeah. of Yoga Slam for us as first and last shot. I would love to do a Bong Joon Ho one. Yes. Because I feel like I think I know the last shot of Mother. Obviously, Memories of Murder. That's a classic right down the barrel of the lens. Um, Parasite. Yes, Parasite is a bookend shot for the glass window. This could be fun. We should do this soon. Yeah. We really should. The Killing of a Sacred Deer is currently out on Stan. Well, speaking of Stan, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? Well, I'll tell you a bunch of stuff that comes to other streaming services, not Stan, necessarily. Everyone, time to move on. Coming to Netflix, we have Cocaine Bear. Yay! And in fact, that comes to Binge as well. Very exciting. And we also got Robert Rodriguez's latest Spy Kids Armageddon. It's a new Spy Kids film, Zeke. Has it got the original kids? No. I'm most certain it does not. I mean, that would, that would be does a little... have a larger wood? I'd, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think so. I might have to find him somewhere else, Zeke. I but... still think Spy Kids 3D is like a fever dream. Oh, just... We all saw that in the cinemas with our little 3D glasses. We did. What is that film? We did. Like, what is it? It still looks better than Ant-Man Quantumania, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Coming to Disney Plus, we have No One Will Save You, which sees Caitlin Dever as an exiled, anxiety-ridden homebody who must battle an alien who's found its way into her home. Oh, that took a turn. I did. A little bit of a sci-fi thing going on there. Uh, the Continental is coming to Prime. It's a three-part John Wick spin-off series. It's pretty cool. That is. I still haven't seen the fourth one, so... Not missing much. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Rubberman. <laughs> Rubberman. John Rubberman Wick. So I mentioned that um, uh, Cocaine Bear is coming to binge. We also have a new series, an animated series. I usually don't mention series, but it's quite interesting. It's called Young Love, and it's actually... I noticed it straight away. I saw the thumbnail. Okay. I was like, that looks a lot like the art style for Hair Love, the Oscar-winning short film. That's the same year Parasite won. Turns out it is, in fact, based off that short and it looks into the life of the or the experience, the African American experience through a family of millennial parents and their young daughter. I, I hear it's intriguing, good. intriguing. Yeah, that blew my mind because I immediately recognized it on the thumbnail. I was like, that looks like a hair love. Oh, would you look at that? <laughs> good pickup. So very interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know how long the episodes are. Maybe like twenty minutes. Mm. Peace. We shall see. Now there's a lot coming to cinema, Zeke. 
No, strap in. Okay. Fasten your seatbelt. Fasten your seatbelt for Retribution, which is a Liam Neeson thriller in which he and his two kids complete a series of twisted instructions in order to disable the bomb someone is attached to their car. So it's like speed. Taken v speed. Or Taken x speed. The combination. It's actually comedic that this is what Liam Neeson does now. He just he's done literally dozens and dozens and dozens of these kinds of films. Like, <laughs> it's, it's genuinely comedic. Do they even pay well? Is he is he like stuck? Is he in the Nick Cage thing where he just has to do the same movie over and over again? Well, or or he got does in he trouble? Get... Didn't he? Because he said some pretty uh... Liam Neeson. Yeah, he said like when he was younger, he would like kill kill a man or something like that. I remember reading years ago, he yeah something like that. Like he was um, gonna kill someone, he didn't. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, <laughs> I read something like that and a it was while like ago. Those, yeah, it was like, okay, Liam, righto, Liam, ch- chill out. Uh, look, hey, count, look, count your money, easy money. At least now he's got to the point where he's like pretty much dormant in the film. Like he's just in a car. <laughs> this. <laughs> So he's, he's literally in a green screen studio just going, There you go. Thanks, I'll take my two Like million. the cast of the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. <laughs> when they did their scavenger hunt episode, I was like, oh God, literally more than half the episodes in a green screen car. They, they were literally transitioned between like four different car scenes. I'm like, get off the damn green screen. <laughs> Jesus Christ, guys. Um, so you're right, that's probably what's going on there. Uh, another film is coming out is called It Lives Inside, which sees young Sam reject her East Indian culture and family to be like everybody else in school. However, when a mythological demonic spirit latches onto her former best friend, she must come to terms with her heritage to defeat it. That's the second time a bloody a bloody supernatural twist comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer high school. <laughs> there you go. Bring her back. I saw the first few episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, so good. I had a girl I liked in high school who made me watch, and we barely got through the first few episodes. I think I've watched Buffy front to back, start to finish, God, at least two times the whole way through. I probably watched the first two or three seasons, probably four or five times. Oh, wow. Um, And then Angel, the spin-off show, I've watched the whole way through twice, too. I love it. I, I think Buffy is, like, one of those shows that, God, I would, like... It, uh, not many shows make me want to live in the 90s and be like <laughs> a 90s high school kid. That would be the show that made me want to do that. Just so I would be a little closer to Sarah Michelle Gellar's age. There you go. Just maybe. Yeah. Could have beat out Freddie Prince Jr. I couldn't have. I, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it would have mattered. <laughs> <laughs> and I like Freddie Prince Jr. too, so. Oh, goodness. Well, something a little closer to the other side of the age bracket, Zeke. We have Paw Patrol, the mighty movie which sees the pups magically gain superpowers after a meteor strikes Adventure City. Things turn for the worse when Humdinger and a mad scientist steal their powers and turn themselves into supervillains. Yeah. Did, did you know, so I had my year 11s, uh, my year 11 media students yes. analyze a podcast segment or episode. Yeah. And one of them chose to do the podcast, um, I think it was called, it was called Analyzing Bluey. Oh, cool. And, yeah, her whole video essay was on this podcast episode talking about analysing an episode of Bluey. So it's an analysis of a podcast that's anal- analysing... Sing- yeah, it's talking about Bluey. podcast conventions. Oh, um, I see. Like, like they, they explain each episode of Bluey and why it's important for kids. 
Yeah, I know that's not the same as Paw Patrol, but no, it's, it's not. It's not quite. Yeah, we can't do Saw Patrol because they delayed Saw Ten. I'm pretty sure. Ah. but that was that was the uh, what the incident was trying to do for Barbenheimer. We've already got like seven Barbenheimer copies that aren't gonna work. Saw Patrol was meant to be one of them, and then something got pushed because of the Taylor Swift concert movie they're doing. Oh, okay. Some I don't know. Something. Oh, is pushed. that is that called a? An oh, arti- the Exorcist. Is that an artisanal film, or is that just like? Is, how does that work with Taylor Swift now? It's. Is it a- <laughs> <laughs> it's um. Is well, it it's a- like a. I mean, we've got plenty of those. You go is to Luna. It avant-garde. <laughs> it's avant-garde. Yes. No, I'm taking the piss. I think it's just a video of a concert. I think that's what it is. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's got the pre-sales. It got more pre-sale money than Spider-Man: No Way Home. So the Swifties out there working in droves, Excellent. man. I tell you. Uh, coming to Palace Cinemas. This is weird. I don't know why this isn't coming to Hoyts and that as well. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, sees a shy adolescent re- learn about her fabled royal family background of sea krakens. Yeah, it's a fun, pix- like, the Pixar competitor of the year type mm. thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. different? Why is it only coming to Palace? That's really strange to me. Yeah, must weird. not be that much of a competitor. I guess maybe they're scared of Paw Patrol. Who knows? Yeah. There's a lot of kids' films coming out this week. But finally, this isn't a kids' film. And it's not technically... It's previewing on Saturday the 23rd at Luna. So uh, you're going to have to wait till next month for the wide release. But if you're really desperate, I might catch this. Is Dumb Money, the real-life David Goliath story, the short squeeze of GameStop in January 2021, which stars Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, Pete Davison, Nick Offerman, American Ferreira... And uh, Talia Ryder from Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Really? Hey, she, she's back. She was in another thing as well. Well, she was in West Side Story, I'm pretty sure. I think we did know that. But, um, yeah, I'm keen to see this. We swift saw the GameStop uh, docu... Eat the an, Rich? Yeah, Eat the Rich, the Netflix docu-series. Yes. Which I thought was okay. Yeah, it's um, it, this is the thing. This is the thing I worry about. And, like, of course they're going to do it. They're going to lean into the the web 2.0 like meme emoji culture of it all like in terms of the visuals and like kind of like the mainstream film that i thought was horrible um yeah i i don't know i just hope they find the right balance with that Mm. but like that's how you tell the story it's like well we're here with like the nerdy computer dorks that short squeezed the gamestop stock and made a bunch of money yeah and it's like it could be pretty fun I, i i see why you would that's your like you're gonna caricaturize them, I feel like. Just go the Adam McKay way of doing it. Yeah, The Big Short is a fantastic yeah. film. It's great, and we should do it sometime. But that's not what we're doing next week, Zeke. And <gasps> and I don't think we're doing any of these films next week. But that's okay. No, but hey, look, it's a, a quieter time of the year. Mm. Um, and we've never gone on a journey or a quest quite like what we've got in store for the next few weeks. But no, certainly not. All quests must start somewhere, Jake. That's true. So what are we watching? I think next week on the show, Zeke, this is very exciting. Next week on the show, we're doing a Peter Jackson Director's Corner. Whoa! We're covering The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them.
most extraordinary tale ever told will come to life. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Hobbit from the Shire and eight companions set out on a journey to destroy the powerful One Ring and save Middle Earth. Cool. I'm excited. I, th I yeah. think this is genuinely baffling that we are about to go into episode 245 mm -hmm. and we have never even considered Lord of the Rings, and I, I say, guess yeah, I guess we haven't. And no. I say, and the reason I say that is we have now done a countdown through the decades retrospective. Yes, like what four times now? Four times we've done four, um, and not in any of those polls was Lord of the Rings of any iteration mm. put up for a vote. Um, and it is it is kind of baffling, you know, when we think about it, mm. you know, um. We've done Raiders now, yes. The Lost Ark, and we we've did done do we've Star done a Wars. couple of Star Wars films. We've done a couple, the original, and then Episode Nine when that well, came we don't, out. Yeah, that doesn't exist. I don't remember that episode. <laughs> I don't think that episode exists. Much like the ending of the Lobster, I don't remember it. Oh no! Um, but yeah, look, it's um, it is kind of crazy. And to be honest, I growing up, I religiously watched the extended cuts of mm. this like i've got the box set at home on dvd and we used to watch them and the behind the scenes stuff it was there was a time it was probably a three or four year period of my family where we just oh there's nothing on tv let's watch the behind the scenes for lord of the rings <laughs> like i'm not joking it's because my mum had a massive crush on vigo mortensen oh well, there you go aragorn um did you know he broke his toes Zeke? <laughs> I can tell you probably every stupid bit of trivia to do with these these mo these movies. So, um, uh, but what I'm more interested in is obviously doing Fellowship, which arguably is probably the best of the three. But we'll, ooh, I, I, I like I'm, that. I like that. Um, I'm of the mind where I think I enjoy Two Towers the most, but we can talk more about that next week. But I do think, from a film point of view, I think the first one's the best one. Interesting. Um, well, I mean, I but I've only seen these films once, and not even the extended versions, just the theatrical versions. I can give you the extended versions if you want them. Yeah, that could be great. I mean, I probably should just go ahead and buy them. Well, my sister bought me the DVD set, mm. and I think that there were the theatrical versions on those sets. I probably do odds myself to buy like a crazy four. I genuinely collection. think, without like no nerdum or anything, from a film point of view. Mm the extended versions are the way to watch these films. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hear that everywhere. I haven't heard a single person be like, oh, the theatrical version's better. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much, like, there's little scenes, and I know it adds an extra 30 minutes and 40 minutes, I think, in Return of the King yeah, well. to each, each cut, but it's so worth it. 
there's probably like, I mean, it's probably about at least 80% of the additional content is beneficial to like understanding things more. Interesting. Um, which then makes, the, by the law, making it better. Look, there's so much to talk about next week on the show. <laughs> yeah, you're um, very excited. I like it. I'm, I'm excited to watch the behind the scenes again too. <laughs> I really owe my, I owe it to myself to watch like as much to absorb because I, I, I should have been a Lord of the Rings guy as a kid and I yeah. just never was it. And there's a lot to like about Peter Jackson and from a career point of view, talking about him as a director, but sort of talking about where at this time, you know, he was arguably the biggest director on earth in this, this period yeah. of time. Oh my God. Well, he had, he um, had the literal weight of his shot. I mean, I can't think of any other film where a director, a single director had that much to like achieve and a, and a point to prove yeah. By adapting those novels into films. And in such a short period of time. Yeah. And then on top of that, to go that step further, to then go and do King Kong and yeah. and do that film. And and then to take, you know, and we can explore his career more, but to take a turn and, and kind of go back to a documentary root point of view and, and, and focus on preserving archival footage and... and mm. And just evolving as a director is, is going to be so interesting to talk about sort of where his journey led, how he moved from these massive blockbuster films. You know, why was Peter Jackson never in the Marvel conversation? Like, right. It's such an interesting thing. Like, why did he go this route? So that'll be cool to talk about. And I really do think, you know, especially with the second part of Dune coming out, I think... I was thinking Dune was probably one of the other ones in terms of a director with weight in his shoulders. But I still think The Lord of the Rings had more to prove than Dune 2021 and did. I don't think it's ever been... Like, the, the the scope of those three films, I don't think has ever been done as good. Mm. Like, I think that trilogy is better than the original Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, wow. Well. Um, which is a... A big, a big claim, but I'm, I'm ready to back it next week on the show. No, well, look, I'm excited to. I mean, I, I have nothing against the Lord. There's no real reason I didn't watch it until a couple of years ago. I was just like, I just never got around. I'm not a huge fantasy person. I mean, I like Harry Potter, I guess, but I'm excited to be more a part of this conversation. Like, I want to be a part of the Lord of the Rings fan club because it does look like a great, fun club to be in. And to be intimately involved in these films. Because, like, I watched it once and moved away. And I remember certain characters and certain arcs. But it's like, there are four and a half hour versions of these films. And they're great. (laughs) So I want to be... I'm excited to be involved in that conversation, is what I want to say. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of... The Ring. The Ring. Singular Ring. Is it? Is there more than one ring? No, fellowship ring. But uh, and, I see, I've never in said general, Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring together. Right. And that just confused me halfway through because I went, you know, "There's it's two rings." Yeah. Because it's Return of the King in two thousand. So it sounds like there are two rings in it. But what's annoying me is that there's only one ring in Lord of the Rings. So why is it plural rings? Yeah. Take care, guys. See you next week. <laughs>